Good morning. So starting in Ephesians 1, verse 1, I'm going to read the whole chapter. This is NIV. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. Well done. Thank you, guys. We're going to take the next six or seven weeks to walk through the book of Ephesians together. The book of Ephesians is actually not a book. It's a letter. And I don't know if, what your relationship is with the Bible, but here's what I want to invite you to do. Um, if you don't have a Bible, get one. It takes about 19 minutes to read the entire letter to the Ephesians. And so the more you read this letter, the more it has the ability to shape you. 
these words that you just heard have more power in them than anything I could ever say, than any prayer that you can ever pray, though it is filled with absolutely beautiful prayers. The book of Ephesians, just by way of introduction, is one of the most influential documents of all time. Just seven pages in my Bible, and it has outlasted. It has been more impactful than any of the world's philosophers or any of the world's philosophies because we believe that it is not only God-breathed, but it is God-breathing, that every time we interact with it, it has something ancient to say, but also something new to say. And Ephesians is about the grace of God, how Jesus is victorious in every realm in the cosmos, big and small, visible and invisible, temporary and eternal. Ephesians, in a word, is about grace, what it is and how it works. In fact, that's how Paul organized the, his letter to the Ephesians. We call these little chapters and numbers chapters 1 through 6. These were not a part of the original letter, but they are helpful. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 make, make up part 1. Chapters uh, 4 through 6 make up part 2. Part one, we'll see, is the plan of God's grace for the first three weeks. And in part two, we'll see the power of God's grace, what God's grace is and how God's grace works. Today, we'll look specifically just at Ephesians chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, if you've got a Bible app on your phone, I encourage you to have it out. Walk through this with me. We're going to look at every verse together. Um, Ephesians one not only contains all the themes that Paul will talk about in the rest of the letter, but it contains the majority of the themes, of the major themes in Paul's writings, and therefore, the Christian faith itself. Alongside Romans, Ephesians is the book that has most affected Christian thought and discipleship. So if you're not a Jesus follower and you're here, welcome. Sincerely, so happy that you're with us. If you want to know what Christians believe, we're going to talk about it. It's here in the book of Ephesians, in this letter from Paul. So I encourage you, bring your Bibles for the next few weeks. We have some Bibles at the back of the room. Be sh feel free to grab one. If you don't have one, it's our gift to you. Um, if it's got somebody's name in it, that's their gift to you. I'll be happy to give you that Bible. Um, Ephesians has some of the most powerful prayers ever written. Memorize these words. I can't tell you how powerful these prayers are in your mouth, in your situation. I promise you this, as you do that, God's Spirit will awaken them to your understanding. Most of what you just heard from Andrew and Crystal seemed dense, maybe it seemed repetitive, maybe it seemed hard to understand, maybe it seemed like you're looking at a painting and thinking everybody else is thinking something and moved by this painting, I'm just not, I just don't get it. That's okay. If you put these words to memory, if you put them in your heart, you'll be amazed at how God doesn't just reveal what the meaning is. God reveals himself to you through Scripture. So, in fact, with that in mind, let's take a pause right now. Let's just ask God to do that in our time together. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you that the people in this room, you know each of us by name. We are your idea. The Apostle Paul and all the churches surrounding Ephesus were your idea. Lord Jesus, you revealed your plan, the plan hidden from all the ages past. You were the revelation of that plan. Make that plan, your grace, make it clear to us. Reveal yourself to us. Take the limitations of my language, my diction, my voice, the limitations of our time, of our understanding. Remove the distractions, Lord, and do what only you can do. Reveal Jesus to us. That is my earnest, heartfelt prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pick it up, Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just look at the first three verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. That was astounding to a whole lot of people. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace, there's our word. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right away, we get a whole lot in those first three verses. This is a kind of an open letter. Though it's addressed to the saints at Ephesus, in your Bibles, the words in Ephesus, maybe you've got a little footnote there, that indicates that the words in Ephesus actually aren't in the earliest manuscripts. The, the, The earliest manuscripts say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. This was very likely a circular letter given to an entire region, the entire region surrounding Ephesus, or what we would call modern-day Turkey, meant to be read and taught aloud in small portions over time in Jesus' gatherings, just like this one. Yet, these words provide a kind of tension. This is one of the key themes, not only in this letter, but one of the key themes in the Christian faith. Paul locates his audience in two places. They are in Ephesus, and yet they are in Christ. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. For the first six or seven months of my time here as a pastor, Um, I had dual citizenship. I was both a citizen of Oklahoma and of California. I had a little ADU with a sweet family in Goleta, and they they let me stay there for a season while I traveled back and forth so that my daughter could finish eighth grade, so my family could get the home ready in Oklahoma so that we could move here. But in that season, I I had a California license plate and an Oklahoma driver's license. I was a dual citizen. I'm still working on the lingo. I'm not bilingual just yet. Can't speak Oklahoma and California just yet. I'm working on it. Be patient with me. Um, But uh, in this season, I belonged in a sense to both kingdoms. I belonged to the season of Tulsa, uh, to the kingdom of Tulsa and the kingdom of Santa Barbara. Now we are fully citizens of Santa Barbara, but I'm still a dual citizen. The same is true of you. No matter where you are from, 
If you are a follower of Jesus, you have, according to Paul, a dual citizenship. You have a citizenship in the place among the people that God has called you, but your true citizenship is in what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Your true citizenship is in the kingdom of God because you are in Christ, according to the Apostle Paul. You're in Christ, Ephesians or Laodiceans or Philadelphians or Nicians or Smyrnans or Ephesians. You're in Christ, but you're also in the place God has called you to be. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a dual citizen. If you're a citizen of the United States, of California, of Santa Barbara, of Montecito, Oxnard, Summerlin, Carpinteria, but you're also a member of this other kingdom, the kingdom of God. And Paul would say this kingdom is actually more real, more significant, has more truth on offer than the other kingdom that you're a part of. The temporal kingdom that you can see here and experience is a, uh, it, it, it is real, but there's something more real, and that is for us who follow Jesus, that is being in Christ. We are right now in Santa Barbara, but you're also in Christ. These kingdoms that we live in give shape to uh, how we live, the way that we live. And they do that through stories. Stories are the most powerful, maybe, uh, way of communicating that there is. As I read through my notes here, or as I read through Scripture, you're hearing me at a certain level, but when I step away and I tell a personal story, which I'll do a a thing or two to reset your attention span, it captures your imagination in a way that just mere information does not do. You live in two kingdoms, but the kingdoms, uh, but you're going to shape, be shaped by one story or the other. Both kingdoms want you to believe a set of stories, uh, a story. So Paul is beginning his letter by immediately offering an invitation to attach yourself to a different story than what you see right in front of you. Faithful in Christ. I live in Santa Barbara, but I'm faithful in Christ. I'm a student at UCSB or SBCC or Westmont, but I'm faithful in Christ. I attend Dos Pueblos or Carpinteria High, but I'm faithful in Christ. You live in two kingdoms, and you're shaped by the stories on offer from those kingdoms. Scripture offers a story that connects you to reality. Scripture offers you a story that's so much bigger than the temporal needs of the here and now, or the frustrations of the news cycle, or the difficulties of the economy, or the fleeting pleasures of, on offer every weekend. Scripture's story is much different than you might think. It's better than you might think. In fact, I know that to be true. The more time I spend with Scripture, the more I realize it's better than I thought it was, and I thought it was good to begin with. It's so much bigger. Its scope reaches so much further than you might think. But did you know you can live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven while still being shaped by temporal stories, false narratives, the disinformation campaign on offer from the culture you live in? Think about how, much, how many stories you consume on a weekly basis. 
Think about how much our, our, our culture is obsessed with stories. If you have a good story and you're able to tell a good story, whether through, whether through songwriting or through script writing or through oration or through public speaking or through uh, your brand or your product, if you're able to tell a good story, there's a whole lot of success on offer for you. So that's why trillions of dollars in the world's brightest minds are being put to what? Stories. Stories are trying to capture your imagination for what the good life is without actually delivering that good life to you. Stories are capturing your imagination of the you you could be without actually showing you how to be that person. That's why anxiety and mental health issues are on the rise like never before in history. A government official in the UK was recently recorded talking about the difference between TikTok's algorithm in China and TikTok's algorithm in the West. TikTok, of course, is the place where uh, uh, China is, of course, uh, uh, owned by people from China. And so the algorithm works differently in different countries, supposedly. I don't know if this is true. But the gentleman suggests that in China, the algorithm works to reward videos that are posted that show things like accomplishment, hard work, and diligence. Why? Because they want their youth to repeat what they see. What gets rewarded gets repeated. And so they want to fill their imagination with what? Hard work, accomplishment, and diligence. What does TikTok Reward in the West, in the United States, in, in uh, the UK. Well, this gentleman uh, suggests that the algorithms reward buffoonery, pranks, foolishness, fail videos, mockery, and shenanigans. Again, I don't know if this is true, but what he's saying is based on a truth. He makes this profound statement in the end, and he said, if you wanted to destroy a nation This is exactly how you would do it. What stories do you believe? Are you shaped by the stories of your culture? Or are you allowing your mind, your imagination to be shaped by the story of Scripture? Paul here in Ephesians starts out of the gates strong by saying you are in Christ and in Ephesus. You're in the place where you live and you're part of another kingdom. This is the story of God's grace. In the first, first three chapters, as I mentioned, he unpacks the plan of God's grace, how it works. And here in Ephesians 1, we see Paul immediately burst into song. He writes about the victory of God's plan. So if you want to know the shape of Ephesians 1, it's this. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, is a victory song of God's grace and Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, the last half, is a prayer for the revelation of God's grace in your life and in mine and in the lives of your family and friends. So let's pick up on verses 3 through 14, which in Greek, believe it or not, is one long run-on sentence. Verses 3 through 14 in Greek are one sentence. Here's what I want you to do. I want to give you a little key. It's the word in. We, we, uh, Paul already gave you that key, that little translation key. So I just want you to listen for the in Christ, in heaven, in him, before him, in the beloved language. See if you can pick these words out, these themes out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in 
Christ. With what? With grace. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he, made, which, with which he blessed us or graced us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his plan, of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with grace, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor or the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Someone who goes on and on like that in Georgia, we have a little phrase for that. We say there was a kink in the hose and somebody just let the kink out of the hose. You guys, you guys don't know that reference? Okay, again, it's a translation. Just trying to learn, just trying to trying these things out on you. Okay. There's a kink in the hose. Paul was so built up in his faith. He was just thinking about the grace of God. He was worshiping God. And when he wants the people of Ephesus, the people of Smyrna, the people of Laodicea, the people of Philadelphia, the people of the whole region to know about the grace of God, he unloads on them this beautiful doctrinal work. I said at the beginning that Romans alongside Ephesians may be the most influential to Christian thought. Over the last couple thousand years, the, the most brilliant theologians, the most prolific preachers and writers have gone on and on and on reflecting on that passage you just heard. There is so much. In fact, there's weight. You could spend a lifetime. It's like a diamond. Every time you turn it, you see something different. We could spend a lifetime standing in awe of the grace of God, the plan of God revealed in Jesus. There's so much amazing, rich, helpful doctrine even packed into this one Pauline sentence. So, so much practical application. But I just want to give you one thing to think about from this passage. If you'll permit me, I'll tell you about one specific doctrine. Don't get weirded out by the word doctrine. It just means a, a, a tidy set of ideas, something concrete in Scripture that you can depend upon. The doctrine is called the doctrine of union with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ. Now, how many of you have heard about this doctrine before? Okay, how many of you have not heard about this doctrine before? Okay, it's okay. Um, 
you've come to the right place, okay? I'm going to give you a couple of definitions. The doctrine of union with Christ is that doctrine that states that we enter in by grace through faith into Jesus Christ. Salvation is not just something that God gives us. Salvation is something that we receive. All the blessings of salvation are received in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? That means when you give your heart to Jesus in the, in the language of the old preachers, when you give your life to Jesus, when you begin to follow Jesus, you surrender your life to him, you are in him and he is in you. When I was about three years old, my dad told me the gospel in the best way that I could understand as a three-year-old, I prayed a prayer to ask Jesus to come into my heart. I didn't realize that I was also in Christ. What does that not mean? Well, it does not mean that we can just simply like Jesus, that Jesus is just on the periphery of our lives. He's just an add-on. He's just a means of life enhancement. Jesus wants all of you. Why? Because he wants to give you all of him, all of his grace. Another theologian, Louis Burkhoff, writes, union with Christ is that intimate, vital, spiritual union of Christ with his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength and the blessedness of their salvation. What the doctrine of union with Christ is trying to say is that in him or the with him language in the Bible is the most important language as it relates to your salvation. Here's another great de definition by Kyle Worley of Knowing Faith. Union with Christ is the believer's identification, participation, and incorporation in Christ. We identify with Jesus as he identifies with us. It's not just that you say, hey, I see you, Jesus. I love you. I want to follow you. He says, I see you, Fritz. I love you. I want to be in your life. He says, I see you, Ricardo. I love you. I want to be in your life. He says, I see you, Grace. I love you. I want to be a part of your life. He identifies with you. Participation means your salvation is not a static thing. It's not just that we uh, get fire insurance so we don't have to go to heaven, uh, hell someday. It's that we get to participate in this work of grace here and now. It's a, dyn a, a dynamic or a vital thing. It's not that just that your name is written on a register in heaven somewhere. In him you live and move and have your very being right here, right now. So we identify with Christ, we participate in his grace, and then we are incorporated into Christ. We have been brought into the body of Christ. So I know we're talking a lot about spatial language, and no, it's not a real clean cut. It's kind of an abstract thing, but, but you can imagine Jesus is the head, and we are the body. Jesus is exalted in heaven, and we are his hands and feet. We are his body at work in creation, in this current age, the age of the now and the not yet. I know that's a whole lot, but let me keep going. If you just hang with me, just two more minutes. We have identification, participation, and incorporation with Jesus in Christ 
through Christ and into Christ. You'll see in Scripture other places where it talks us about you being with Christ. Other places you'll see it talk about being in, through, or into. And what that's saying is this. You and I, when we follow Jesus, whenever that happens, whenever conversion happens in some way that is mysterious and I don't understand, but is a very real way, we are identifying with the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and heavenly session of Jesus. That is to say that you and I are unified or united to Christ in every bit of his life. You're united to Jesus in his death, in his resurrection. You're not united to Jesus in his ascension. And even now, it's called his heavenly session. Jesus is the head of the church. And Paul is saying, you're a part of what he's doing here and now. In life, in Christ Jesus, we are knit to him who perfectly obeyed on our behalf. His life and ministry are a reflection of that. In death, Christ, in Christ Jesus, we are knit to the one who has paid the full penalty for our sin. In resurrection in Christ Jesus, you are knit to the one who has triumphed over death. In Jesus' ascension, you are knit to the one who is in the very presence of the Father and has the Spirit without measure. And in Jesus' current heavenly session, we, we are participants in Christ's mission in his body. In some mysterious but very real, real sense, you were in Jesus in the crucifixion. And when he was healing the sick, and when he was multiplying the loaves and fishes, and when he was teaching, and when he was perfectly obeying the law, his resurrection from the dead is your resurrection from the dead. His time in his resurrected body is and will be your time in a resurrected body. So I'll just make it real clear. The doctrine of union with Christ, which Paul is talking about, he's introducing in Ephesians 1. It says this, what can be said of Jesus can be said of me because I am in him. Here in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, what we get is a super rich theological but also practical doctrine. It unveils the plan of God's grace. You might say it this way. Jesus is reality. You can live in that reality here and now. Where did Paul get this idea that Jesus so identifies with us in this way? In identification and participation. Where did Paul get this idea? Well, I can tell you one place that he certainly might have gotten it. In Acts chapter 9, Saul has his famous encounter with the risen, exalted Jesus on the road to Damascus where Saul was on his way to persecute and possibly murder more men, women, and children who followed Jesus. And Jesus says this when he interrupts him on the road, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And by the way, Saul was not his previous name, and now he is the artist formerly known as Saul, currently known as Paul. 
That's not how it works. Saul was just like his, his name back home. And Paul was his name on the road, so to speak. So Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why does Jesus say that? In the Gospels, there are a number of scribes and Pharisees and high priests who conspire to persecute and even murder Jesus. But Saul isn't mentioned there. Now Saul is on his way to persecute the people of God. Why does Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus so identified with the people of God that he's watching this guy, Saul, and he's watching him persecute and murder the people of God. And he says, Saul, don't you know you're doing that to me? I want you to think about how practical this is. This seems real heady and abstract maybe to some of you, but if you'll think about it, if you'll take a long walk, If you'll take a long, oh, I got you. I totally got you. If you'll take a long walk with a cup of tea and just think about this, God will reveal himself to you. But I want you to think about this idea. If Jesus so identifies with the people of God in their suffering, don't you think he also identifies with the people of God in their service? When you serve in the name of Jesus, don't you think Jesus identifies with you? Don't you see that you're participating in the current work of Jesus as the head of the church? This is the moment that Saul realized the plan of God's grace. Oh, that Jesus really does identify with the people of God in the mystery of God. That Jesus really does identify with people so clearly, so profoundly that he sees himself in them and them in him. Paul recognized that God's grace is Jesus. God's plan is Jesus. Jesus is reality. So think about what that means when you connect to Jesus. When you connect to Jesus, you're connecting to a kingdom reality. You're connecting to reality itself. When you pray, you're bringing a foretaste of Jesus' kingdom reality to the present moment. When you serve and give and worship, when you show patience to other people, you are saying to all the other kingdoms that you inhabit, Jesus is reality. I want you to take a step back and think about what Jesus was doing when he rescued Paul that day. The judgment of God came on Saul that day, knocked him off of his horse, and God gave a gift not only to someone who did not deserve it, but the grace of God was extended to someone who was ill-deserving of it. It's not just that he had no money in the account, he owed a debt of gratitude he could not possibly pay. He was the worst of the worst. So much so that when people saw him come around, the people who were already following Jesus, it kinda, they kind of stood back a bit. They weren't quite sure 
Like, God, are you really that much of a bleeding heart that you would save someone like this? Jesus, reality, the, the reality of God's grace, the reality of God's grace is that it is always an act of love. God's acts of war are always acts of goodness. God's work against evil is always grace. If you want to push back the darkness in your life, participate in that grace. And every time you do, you're inviting the reality of that Jesus, that same Jesus who saw Saul, that same Jesus who knocked him off of his horse and invited him into a life that he did not deserve. Every time you participate in grace, you're inviting the reality of that Jesus into your life. Jesus had said so himself. Hey, thank you. I feel, wait a minute. Okay, here we go. Perfect. Thank you, guys. Jesus said this, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered the na to the nations. He will separate one from the other, the shepherds from the sheep and the goats, and he will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to the ones on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Where do you think Paul got that language, foundation of the world? From Jesus. For what does he say? I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, those faithful in Ephesus, in Santa Barbara, in Goleta, wherever you're from, they will say, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger or welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That is the doctrine of union with Christ. You are in Christ. The plan of God's grace is Jesus Jesus is the reality of God's grace. Jesus is reality. When I was in high school, I was, I think, I don't know, I can't judge people, but as far as I could tell, I was the only person following Jesus in my high school. I talked to a friend of mine, Playl, who lived around the corner. He began to follow Jesus. And then I talked to another girl, April, and she began to follow Jesus. It so happened that April's mom had an acoustic guitar and had the keys to a church building down the road. We're talking rural South Georgia, no stoplights, no gas stations, about as far out in the boonies as you can imagine. Maybe 2,000 people in the whole county. But we began to ask, God, can you move among the teenagers in our area? Miss Marie said, you know what? I got this acoustic guitar. I've got keys to the church. I'll open it up on Mondays, and we'll sing a couple of songs, and we'll talk about Jesus to whoever wants to show up, and we'll trust God to do the rest. 
The first couple weeks, there weren't very many of us. But my friends and I began to pray. We allowed our imaginations to run. We saw that little church filled with teenagers lifting their hands to Jesus. We saw our friends giving their hearts to Jesus, experiencing the grace of God. We started meeting at local high schools in the mornings and praying before anybody ever showed up, praying for our friends to come to Jesus. One of the things we prayed was this last part of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward others, toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things, the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We started crying out to God for our friends. Say, God, would you just open their eyes to your goodness? Will you just open your, their eyes to your grace? Would you show us ways that we could participate in that grace to people who don't know you? And I want you to know, what we experienced in that season was nothing short of miraculous. To this day, dozens and dozens of teachers, uh, teenagers back then will look back on that season and say, revival happened in our school. Students from as much as an hour away started driving to this little bitty church in Arlington, Georgia. Why? Because grace was on offer. The grace of God in Jesus. The reality of God's grace was made known, and that reality was Jesus. Miss Marie, she had a lot of other things she could have done. I didn't know her health concerns. I didn't know what else she was doing. I didn't know what else was going on in her marriage and her life. But who does that? Who spends so much time with teenagers when they have so many other things going on? I'll tell you who does that. Jesus does that. If you are in Christ, surely that means there's a difference between being a Christian in your city and being Christ in your city. I want to invite our worship team up to come. I want you to see this. There is a difference between being a Christian in your school and being Christ in your school. If you're a Christian in your workplace, maybe you've got a scripture on your, on your cubicle wall. Maybe you've got worship playing softly at your computer. That's okay. Maybe you've got a specific tattoo and you hope somebody asks you about that. That's okay. That's great. Those are not, none of those are bad things. But don't you think there's a difference between being a Christian in your workplace 
and being Christ in your workplace. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you are a follower of Jesus, you take Jesus with you. At the end of each of our times together with Miss Marie, she would say this little thing, and I'm sure you've heard it before. Maybe it's cliche to you. It was like water to a thirsty soul for us. She said, maybe you're the only Jesus someone in your life will ever encounter. What if that person that drives you bananas is the only Jesus they will ever encounter? Maybe that family member or friend who is far from God is the, you are the only Jesus they will ever encounter. Tim Keller recounts a story of a young woman that he met at the back of his church in Manhattan. She was resistant to come be a part of the congregation that day, but she showed up. Pastor Tim found his way to have a conversation with her. She said she was interested in learning more about Jesus because of an interaction that she had at work. She worked for NBC in Manhattan. And not long after she had been working there, she made a major mistake. One that would have absolutely cost her her job. She was embarrassed, ashamed, and already looking to go back to her little home outside of Manhattan. Back as a failure. Something happened. Her boss went to his superior and told his superior that it was his fault. He took complete responsibility for what she had done. As a result, he took a hit to his reputation. His boss was deeply and profoundly disappointed. He was within an inch of losing his job. She was amazed at what he did. And she went in to thank him. She said, who does this? Why would you do this? She said she had always had supervisors who took credit for what she accomplished, but she never had a supervisor who took the blame for something she had done wrong. What made you different? What makes you different, she said. He was very modest and deflected her questions, but she was insistent. And finally, he said, look, I'm going to tell you this one time. I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. And that's why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. She says she stared at him for a moment and just simply said this, what church do you go to? Who does that? What kind of a human does that kind of a thing? What kind of a human has such a distance from the temporal needs what kind of a human has so stiff-armed the narratives of up-and-to-the-right progress that culture has on offer? 
What kind of a person has been so captivated by a different story that they're willing to lay down their life for a friend? Well, only Jesus, only Jesus in us. Jesus. He makes the worst people. He makes he loves the worst people so much, sometimes it makes the rest of us uncomfortable. We have a hard time understanding. But what if you could be that kind of Jesus? Paul, in the opening to his letter to the Ephesians, with the most eloquent, complex language he can, is looking at you and saying, you can. Jesus is in you, and you are in Jesus. Jesus is the expression of God's grace. Jesus is the reality of God's grace. Jesus is reality. And he's here now. Would you stand to your feet with me? We just want to create a little bit of time here at the end to encounter Jesus in this space. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not just here 410 State Street. You're in Christ. Come boldly before the throne of grace and obtain mercy and grace. We have communion on offer. Come participate in communion. We have carpets down front. However the Lord leads, encounter the risen Jesus right here, right now, because Jesus is reality. Let's worship.